This is Earth Radio. And now here's human music. Huh. Human music. I like it. Just when I think you've said the stupidest thing ever, you keep talking. Most illogical reaction. Welcome back, everyone, to the sixth episode of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing. Some of you might be confused as to why we're having the podcast two days later than we normally do, and that's because I'm just starting to recover from a terrible illness that has been plaguing me for the last three or four days or so. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but I was just having horrific stomach pains, and I'm glad that it finally seems to be going away. Unfortunately, though, I was in no condition to work on this podcast, so it was with great regret that I had to push back my recording schedule two days. In regards to the schedule of this podcast, though, I do have an important announcement, and that is I know I promised the podcast would come out every week, but looking into the future and looking at things long term, if I want to produce this podcast year-round, I'm going to need time to work out new ideas, work on the back end of things such as starting up social media accounts, promoting the website, all that good stuff. And the break I had over the holidays allowed me to generate a lot of the ideas that went into these three podcasts. So I've decided that the last week of every month will not have an episode of Naples Ultra. So once we've worked through our rotation of narrative episode, argumentative episode, and engagement episode, it's time to take a little break. And that's not to say there won't be any podcast ever on the last week of the month because that slot would be the perfect time to put in an interview podcast or something along those lines but in order to keep the podcast interesting with engaging ideas i believe it's important to take some time to focus on big picture items it will also give me the opportunity to work on the blog something that has been kind of neglected since the podcast has started so I've got a couple ideas for written pieces of work, and one of those ideas will appear next week. And that's all I have to say for now. So without further ado, I hope you will enjoy this week's episode of Naples Ultra, The Emperor's Burden. When a man sees his end, he wants to know there was some purpose to his life. How will the world speak my name in years to come? Will I be known as the philosopher, the warrior, the tyrant? Or will I be the emperor who gave Rome back her true self? What would you do if you were the most powerful human being on the planet? And I want you to ask yourself that question with complete seriousness. What would you do if you were the richest human being on the planet? You had complete and utter control of the world's most powerful nation at the time. You were in complete and total command of the world's best military. And you had absolute control over hundreds of millions of human beings. Would you go on a spending spree and buy all the luxuries you've always dreamed of having? 
Would you extract revenge on those who have wronged you throughout your life? Would you invade and subjugate your neighbors because, hey, you can, you've got the greatest army in the world? Or would you completely and utterly deny yourself of all these luxuries and benefits and take the burdens of office foisted upon you seriously? So seriously, in fact, that you would focus on almost nothing but your own personal duty to your people when it wasn't the people who put you in power? Would you record a diary and tell yourself every single day that you can be doing better? My inclination is that while a lot of us would like to think that we would take our duties seriously, in practice, when we are given absolute power, I think many of us would fall to the temptations that come with being in complete and total control. In fact, when we look throughout history, the number of absolute rulers who did not fall to this temptation could probably be counted on one hand. And that's what makes the man we're going to talk about today so completely and utterly remarkable in my mind. And that man is Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Now, allow me, if you would please, the opportunity to set the stage for what the world was like when Marcus would come to power. Marcus was born on April 26, 121 AD, and died on March 17, 1980 AD, at the age of 59, which even for the time was not that old. He ascended to power on March 8, 161, which means he ruled for about 19 years. Marcus is considered the last in a string of emperors which has been dubbed historically as the Five Good Emperors. This period started with the rule of Nerva in 96 AD. Nerva really only gets thrown in there because he's the start of this dynasty. He only ruled for two years and didn't do a whole lot during his tenure. His successor, on the other hand, Trajan, ruling from 98 AD to 117 AD, is a very famous figure in history. Not to mention one of the most talented men to have ever been sworn in as Emperor of Rome. It was under Trajan that the Roman Empire reached its greatest extent. It was under Trajan that the Roman Empire would add Dacia to its collection of provinces. Dacia is roughly where modern-day Romania is. As well, Trajan was able to invade and take Mesopotamia, which approximately correlates to modern-day Iraq. These conquests gave Rome the resources to enter what most people argue is its greatest age. Trajan represents the Roman Empire at its greatest extent. After Trajan would come Hadrian, another extraordinarily famous Roman emperor, and this is largely due to the fact that one of his greatest constructions still exists to this day, and that is Hadrian's Wall. Though it looks like it's a shadow of its former self, the runes are still there. And this wall is a wall which stretches across the British Isles, dividing England from Scotland. And one thing I want to say about Hadrian's Wall and Roman fortifications in general is that most people assume that this was some sort of military strong point. And it was to a certain extent. However, its main purpose was to create 
choke points that the Romans could use to control and monitor the flow of goods into their territory. So they would know exactly who's going in and what's coming in and who's going out and what's going out. And Hadrian's Wall really amplifies his reign as emperor. Not a military man, Hadrian was more concerned in consolidating the gains of the Roman Empire to this point. He also initiated huge provincial developments during his tenure, which would pay dividends in the long term. Hadrian does get a little bit of criticism, though, because he abandoned Mesopotamia, one of Trajan's great conquests. This was due to the fact he felt the area was indefensible. And, quite frankly, I don't blame him. It's a large, open desert, and that's not a combat area that Romans were particularly skilled at, especially not in comparison to their rivals in that region, the Parthian Empire. After Trajan would come Antonius Pius, who ruled from 138 AD to 161 AD. Unfortunately, though, we don't actually know much about his rule. The sources during that time are patchy at best. What we do know, though, is that Antonius's rule was marked by relative peace and stability. In fact, you will see historians make the argument that living in the Roman Empire under Antonius Pius was the best time to live in in human history. I disagree. I think that our time currently is the best time to live in in human history. However, if you wanted to make the argument that Antonius's Rome was the best place to live in in human history before the modern era, I think there's a lot of legitimacy to that argument. Now, at last, we come to the subject of today's episode. After the death of Antonius Pius in 161 AD, it would be Marcus Aurelius's time to take the throne. Unfortunately, though, Marcus's rule was not marked by the same peace and tranquility as his predecessor. Marcus would spend much of his time as emperor putting out military fires and biological fires, I suppose you could say. Because during his tenure, a resurgent Parthian empire would emerge onto the scene once again. Rome would be able to beat back this threat However, troops returning from the battlefields in the east brought with them a deadly plague. A plague called the Antonine Plague that certainly took its toll in Roman society. This plague would kill an estimated 5 million people, approximately one-third of the population in certain parts of the empire. This is something most people believe the Roman Empire never recovered from. And once the plague settled down, Marcus would have to go and spend virtually the remainder of his career fighting in Germany against the various German tribes in the region. So in comparison to his predecessors, Marcus's rule wasn't exactly smooth or easy. Fortunately for the empire though, they had the perfect man in charge who was capable of dealing with all these various crises. I believe in the hands of a lesser individual, the Roman Empire would have been in dire straits. Marcus, though, took his duty to the people and the empire extremely seriously. He worked tirelessly for the benefit of his empire, whether that be in administrative matters or 
military matters, Marcus was up to the challenge. And that finally brings us to Marcus Aurelius as a philosopher. Now, understand that Marcus Aurelius wasn't a philosopher in the traditional sense. He was more a philosopher by mistake. Marcus did, however, study philosophy seriously and belonged to a school of philosophy known as the Stoics. I'll go into the tenets of their philosophy later in the segment. However, for now, I'm really eager to delve into the only written work from Marcus Aurelius which survives to us now. And this is an extremely fascinating piece in my mind. Collectively, we call his written works the Meditations. However, there is a new and far superior translation that is out called The Emperor's Handbook. And I would highly recommend this book to anybody. The one absolutely critical thing you need to understand about this work is that it was never meant for public consumption. What we essentially have is Marcus Aurelius's diary. Because if you read it not knowing that, you're probably going to think, wow, this guy is a sanctimonious jerk, constantly telling me about my duty and everything I'm doing wrong. Who is he to tell me any of this? But when you realize he's telling this to himself and no one else, your entire outlook changes. When you realize that this was never intended to be read by anyone else besides the author, it makes you realize what an extraordinary human being Marcus Aurelius was. He would tell himself every day how he was failing to meet his own expectations of duty and how he could constantly be bettering himself. And I think it's worth reminding ourselves here that Marcus Aurelius at this point is the most powerful person in the world. He is the wealthiest person in the world and, like I said before, has command of the world's greatest military force. He has achieved more than any of us could ever hope to achieve in our lifetimes. Yet here he is still telling himself how he can do better. And to me, that's truly remarkable. To not get absorbed in your own ego. To not grow crazy with power. To not succumb to every physical temptation in the world, which is certainly at your grasp as the emperor at any time you want. There's no historical figure quite like him. And let me show you that as we crack open the Emperor's Handbook. It took me a while to decide how to best organize this reading, because the book itself is a loosely organized collection of personal thoughts. So we're going to look at this in no particular order in terms of how the book is actually sketched out. But mainly, I want to give you an insight into the kind of man Marcus Aurelius was. And hopefully, by the end of the reading, you will have something to take away that you can apply to your own life and better yourself. Marcus Aurelius begins his book by reflecting on and thanking his own teachers throughout his life and who have shaped the person he eventually grew to be. And I think this is a very valuable exercise for us all to do at some point, to silently reflect upon the people who have impacted us throughout our lives and thank them for what they have given to us 
and how they have shaped our future. For example, Marcus writes, I am indebted to my grandfather, Virus, for his good disposition and sweet temper. From my father's reputation and my memory of him, I have learned modesty and manliness. From my mother, I learned to fear God and be generous, to refuse not only to do evil, but to think it, and a simplicity of life far removed from the habits of the rich. What I think is really interesting is what he writes about his adoptive father, the emperor before him, Antoninus Pius. He writes, For my adoptive father, I learned courtesy and unswerving loyalty to decisions taken after hard thought, indifference to pomp and praise, industry and steadiness, a keen interest in any proposal for the public good, reward given strictly to merit, the knowledge of when to press on and when to ease up, chaste habits and the love of companionship. As well, he taught me to refuse public applause and eschew all forms of flattery, to be vigilant in managing the affairs of the empire, to be frugal in spending from the public purse, and to put up with the inevitable grumbling that will follow from those who want something from nothing. Moving ahead a little bit, Marcus actually describes Antoninus to us. He writes, A true Roman, my father, he didn't worry about keeping up with appearances. He felt no anxiety or stress. He took pleasure in treating familiar subjects repeatedly and staying in the same old places. Even after the most violent headaches, he would return quickly and energetically to his work. He hated secrets and kept them only when affairs of state demanded it. Moderation and good taste marked his celebration of holidays. His public works, his distribution of relief to the poor, and his other official acts. Whatever he did, he did out of a sense of duty to meet a real need, not to gain popularity. So it's clear where Marcus got some of his personality traits, from his family, from his friends, and from his adoptive father. I like how he talks about how good taste and moderation marked his games, holidays, and public works, because oftentimes emperors would hold games or distribute alms to the poor, or what they would most often do is create whole new holidays in which people didn't need to go to work. Because Romans didn't really have weekends, but they would eventually have so many public holidays that they would only be working one out of every three days. Antonius, on the other hand, didn't seem to care about that, or at least from what Marcus has told us. He would only embark on any one of these projects if he thought that there was some public good that needed to be fulfilled. And this is a trait which Marcus carried on with him. Moving forward a little bit, we'll see Marcus talk about the people that he's going to meet on a daily basis. He writes, First thing, every morning, tell yourself, Today, I am going to meet a busybody, an ingrate, a bully, a liar, a schemer, and a bore. Ignorance of good and evil has made them the way they are. But I know that the good is by nature beautiful and the bad ugly. And I know that these wrongdoers are by nature my brothers, not by blood or bleeding, but by similarly being endowed with reason and sharing in the divine. None of them can harm me, for none can force me to do wrong against my will, 
and I cannot be angry with a brother or resent him, for we were born into this world to work together, like the feet, hands, eyelids, and upper and lower rows of teeth. <laughs> Sorry, not the phrasing I would have used. Anyway, back to the book. To work against one another is contrary to nature, and what could be more like working against someone than resenting him or abandoning him? There are a lot of reasons I think this passage hits home. He talks about, yes, of course you're going to meet bad people every day, but the only reason they are bad is because they are ignorant of what is good and just. And this is a theme Socrates plays on as well, which is that human beings naturally want to be good. And the only reason we're not good is because we're ignorant of what's good. And this is something that Socrates and I believe both Marcus argue, which is that being good is something humans don't really want to fake. We want to be genuine in our pursuit of what's good and right. So in order to turn bad people into good ones, we simply need to educate them on what the good really is, and they will try and strive for it automatically. And I can already hear a lot of you shaking your heads and thinking to yourselves, man, what a load. But think about yourself. Don't you want to do what is good, not just for the sake of doing what is good, but to genuinely strive for it? And if that for whatever reason, it was proven to you that what you're doing wasn't good, then you would change it. You would try and bring yourself in accordance with the principles of justice. And as we talked about in the last engagement episode, it takes a lot of work to find the good path, to become educated and free yourself from the shackles of ignorance. It truly is a lifelong pursuit. And just about all of us, in fact, maybe all of us, never truly get there. There are two more things I want to touch on on this passage. One, Marcus says that these people, these bad people you're going to meet on a daily basis, can't force you to do anything wrong out of your own free will. Therefore, they cannot harm you. What I really think he's trying to say here is that don't try and stoop to their level. That if you meet a liar and he lies to you, you shouldn't in turn lie back to him. Because what will this accomplish? All that this will accomplish is shrouding your own personal journey towards what is good and just. That while it might be tempting to return a wrong deed with another wrong deed, it simply doesn't benefit anyone. And this is a consistent theme we will see throughout the meditations which is this idea that you should turn the other cheek when wrongdoing is committed against you. And I think this is an extremely difficult thing for people to swallow. But the logic, to me at least, is very clear. That all you will achieve in answering a wrong deed with a wrong deed is degradation of yourself. Now, last point about this passage and one thing that I believe really illustrates what a great leader Marcus Aurelius was is embracing these wrongdoers as your brothers, as your family, and still loving them even though they aren't perfect. And this love for all your subjects is one of the things that I believe creates truly great leaders. And this is one of the things that really bothered me about our previous Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, 
It seemed like he was only interested in treating with you if you were a fervent supporter of him and his party. And that's not the way any leader should ever behave, especially the leader of a first world industrialized nation. Moving forward, let's look at another passage in the same segment. Marcus writes, Remember how long you have procrastinated and how consistently you have failed to put to good use your suspended sentence from the gods. Here he means your life duration on the planet Earth. Back to the quotation. It is about time you realize the nature of the universe of which you are a part and the power that rules it to which your part owes its existence. Your days are numbered. Use them to throw open the windows of your soul to the sun. If you do not, the sun will soon set, and you along with it. And I think it's important to remind ourselves once again, he's not writing for a public audience. This is what he's telling himself. Basically, he's telling himself, stop wasting your life and get back to work, when he's already the most powerful man in the entire world. Moving forward, Marcus writes, does the news bother you? Do you worry about things out of your control? Then take the time to concentrate your mind in the acquisition of some new and useful knowledge, and to stop it from fleeting about. By the same token, guard against the mistake of those who keep themselves so busy to try and gain control that they wear themselves out and lose their own sense of direction having no purpose to guide their actions or even their thoughts. And here we can take away one key thing, which I think is especially relevant to our modern information age and the 24-hour news cycle, which is don't let all the bad news bother you. You can't control it. Stick to things that you can control. Spend your time acquiring useful knowledge that you can then put to good work. But by the same token, don't get so overwhelmed in trying to keep busy that you lose sight of what your true purpose is. And I think this part is advice Marcus himself failed to realize. In a similar vein to this theme of control, Marcus writes, Not knowing what other people are thinking is not the cause of much human misery, but failing to understand the workings of one's own mind is bound to lead to unhappiness. So, again, we see this theme of letting go of that which you can't control. You can't control what goes on inside other people's minds, but you can control what goes on inside yours, and it's best to focus on that. So, then, what is the guiding principle of all of us? Well, Marcus has an answer. He writes, Then what can guide us through this life? Philosophy, and only philosophy. It preserves the inner spirit, keeping it free from blemish and abuse, master of all pleasures and pains, and prevents it from acting without purpose or with the intention to deceive, ensuring that we lack nothing. Whatever others may do or may not do, it accepts accidents of fate as flowing from the same source as we ourselves. And, above all, it waits for death contentedly, viewing it as nothing more than the natural dispersal of those elements composing every living thing. If the constant transformation of one element into another is in no way dreadful, why should we fear the sudden dispersal 
of all our bodily elements. This conforms with nature and nothing natural is bad. What I like about this passage is it shows a very old school form of philosophical thinking. One consistent theme ancient philosophers like to talk about is trying to absolve ourselves of this fear of death and arguing that death is just a natural cause. However, this form of thinking really died out once Christianity was embedded in Western society. Then, death was all about trying to score points for the afterlife. Another very old philosophical theme is that this idea of what's right and moral somehow flows out of what's natural. And this thinking, I feel, has largely been discredited. And it's something I don't necessarily agree with. I don't see everything that is natural as moral and everything that is unnatural as immoral. Philosophy has progressed far beyond this point, and it's worth keeping in mind that what we're reading is almost 2,000 years old. Moving significantly forward here, I want to read a passage that really reflects the overall goal or the overall theme of this podcast. Marcus writes, Treat with the utmost respect your power of forming opinions, for this power alone guards you against making assumptions that are contrary to nature and judgments that overthrow the rule of reason. It enables you to learn from experience and to live in harmony with others. The power to create and formulate your own opinions should never be underestimated. We see people deride opinions that everybody has an opinion, so it's completely meaningless. Yet your opinions are a core part of who you are as a human being. And I think we can all agree it's in our best interests to do our utmost to ensure that our opinions don't result in undue harm to ourselves or our fellow human beings. And part of what we try and do here on Naples Ultra is give you the tools to help you create, explain, and justify your own opinions in a reasonably logical manner, which hopefully we're accomplishing. Continuing on, we can see a return to that theme of turning the other cheek. This is a very famous quote, and the translation here in the Emperor's Handbook is different from the one that is often seen, but Marcus writes, Stop trying to make something of it, and you will rid yourself of this notion, I've been wrong. Overcome your hurt feelings or injured pride in this way, and you will be able to get rid of the wrong itself. The translation of this paragraph that I see the most goes like this. Reject your sense of injury, and the injury itself will disappear. And, I mean, think about it, right? If you keep dragging up this injury that someone else has inflicted against you, every time you drag it up, you are essentially recreating the injury every single time, ultimately just resulting in yourself getting angry, hurt, and depressed all over again. And in another famous meditation quote, which is in the same vein, Marcus writes, The best revenge is to refrain from imitating those who caused the injury. Another core theme of the meditations 
is this idea that everything you need to be happy is right in front of your face. All these other extraneous thoughts are just complicating things. They're muddying the waters. When all that you really need to live a happy and joyous life is to be confident with your own thoughts and appreciate the simple pleasures and the people who love you. To illustrate this, let me read my favorite passage about this theme. Marcus writes, Now picture the times of Vespasian, Vespasian being a Roman emperor previous to Marcus Aurelius. This is what you'll see. Men marrying, raising children, getting sick, going to war, partying, engaging in business, farming, flattering, bragging, suspecting, scheming, hoping for others to die, complaining about hard times, making love, or wanting to, making money, or wanting to, coveting high office, and seeking to be crowned king. But where is all this teeming life now? Leap ahead to the times of Trajan, and what will you find? The same, of course, and it too, dead and gone. For that matter, examine the history or people of any time. See how hard they strove, and how soon they vanished back into the elements from which they were born. But most of all, consider those you have personally known, who, ignoring the good that lay at their feet, ran after some vain thing, and who never found the happiness that was within their reach all the time. A man's interest in an object should be no greater than its intrinsic worth. Remember this, and you will not get distracted by trivialities, or discouraged if you never get to some of life's details. So, here he's saying, Everybody gets wrapped up in these seemingly useless details and aspects of life that really don't mean anything or have any value. And I think this passage is still extraordinarily relevant to our time, maybe even more relevant than in Marcus Aurelius' time, because the amount of trivialities which can eat up our daily lives are more than they've ever been. So with that in mind, don't ignore the good that is at your feet all the time. The last theme of the meditations I want to touch on before we conclude this segment is this theme of focusing on maximizing your present value. That you shouldn't get worried about the past or the future because everything that's important is happening right now in the present right in front of you. In that vein, Marcus writes, do not let the future disturb you. You will meet it, if you have to, with the same weapons of reason which arm yourself against the present. And this is a quote I try and keep reminding myself of, as I have a tendency to get extremely anxious about the future. And Marcus is saying, you know what? You got this, man. You have all the tools you need to face the future already. So chill out and focus on the task at hand. I could go on reading quotes from the meditations and talking about the lessons that they hold and the nuggets of wisdom that are revealed within for much, much longer. But unfortunately, we have to stop somewhere. And I want to stop by going over some of the tenets of the philosophy that Marcus Aurelius subscribes to, the Stoic philosophers. A philosophy that largely doesn't exist anymore, like most ancient philosophies. But besides Marcus Aurelius, Stoicism's most famous other convert would be the great Roman orator and lawyer Cicero. 
But in terms of the philosophy itself, the basic tenet of Stoicism is this idea that you need to become an impartial, logical thinker, that you need to expel all these other negative emotions, jealousy, anger, envy, and recognize the natural beauty of everything around you. Because as we discussed before, a major theme in not just Stoicism, but many other ancient philosophies is this idea that everything virtuous flows from nature. Stoicism also strongly encourages self-control, as self-control is the only way to overcome these negative emotions and ultimately become a logical thinker. Stoicism is also a fatalistic philosophy. It believes that your path is preordained, and many people have pointed to this as an internal contradiction within the philosophy. This is because in the meditations, you will see Marcus Aurelius bring up the fact that over and over again, it is up to you in order to better yourself and become the best human being you can possibly be. But at the same time, if our path is already preordained, then it doesn't matter what we do in this lifetime because it's all set out before us. I feel though, if a Stoic philosopher were here right now and had the opportunity to offer a counter-argument, he would say that while the path before us is already laid out, it is up to us to walk it to the best of our ability. And with that, we have come to the end of the topical segment of Episode 6. Personally speaking, this has been my favorite topical segment to do so far, because in case you don't know, Marcus Aurelius is clearly an important influence in my own personal life. So, I want to thank Marcus for teaching me wisdom, patience, and an appreciation for mankind. And let me take you out with one last Marcus Aurelius quote. The object of life is not to find yourself on the side of the majority, but to avoid finding yourself within the ranks of the insane. Welcome one and all to Mail Time, where we tackle the deep questions and issues submitted by you, the listener. But before we get into it, let's talk about what's going on in the world this week. The main thing is that we had two debates in the United States presidential election over the past couple days, and they were doozies because the Iowa caucuses are coming up shortly which marks the start of the unnecessarily long and protracted process of nominating a candidate for the presidency. This debate solidified in my mind that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president of the United States. He brought the knives out this debate, and I think it's clear that he's becoming more and more comfortable on the debate stage as time goes on. But the main exchange from the debate, which got most people talking, is an exchange between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, in which Ted Cruz tried to paint Donald Trump as not a real conservative, saying something along the lines of he had New York values and not many conservatives come out of New York. Trump responded by saying, hey, I was there at 9-11. 9-11 was bad. 
And what you said is insulting. And people ate it up. And not just people on the right, but people on the left were talking about what a critical blow this was to Ted Cruz. And Cruz did a horrific job in responding to it. And here's what bothers me. It seems like politicians in the United States use 9-11 as a political deflection tool. It reminded me of that episode of Family Guy, and I'm not a huge Family Guy fan. In fact, it's one of my least favorite shows on television. But every so often, it has its moments. And there's an episode where Lois runs for mayor, and it looks like she's going to lose. However, at the debate, all she keeps saying is 9-11, and 9-11 was bad, and people eat it up, and she ends up winning the election. It's like saying, you know what, I really appreciate your complicated, nuanced political point, but here's my counterpoint. 9-11. And honestly, I'm not a Ted Cruz fan at all, but he does have a point, because Donald Trump is significantly less conservative than some of the other members on that stage. He's managed to create this image that he's super conservative by leaning hard right on very specific issues, mainly immigration. However, on things such as social policy and fiscal policy, Donald Trump is way to the left of just about any of those Republicans. And I think Cruz was justified in at least drawing that to the attention of an audience full of Republicans. On the Democratic side, you had another debate, which was certainly the most feisty debate the Democrats have had this cycle. Hillary Clinton, who has, by the way, used the whole 9-11 deflection trick before, not in this debate though, came out with both barrels loaded and pointed directly at Bernie Sanders. Bernie fought back as best he could, but he's not the kind of politician to get into those kind of personal knockdown dragout matchups, which is one of the things I think people find so utterly refreshing about Bernie Sanders. In any case, I think this is a very bad strategy for Clinton to use. That's because the overwhelming majority of Democrats support highly the principles that Bernie Sanders is advocating. So I don't think it's particularly effective for Clinton to go out there and say, yeah, you know what? All those principles you're advocating Bernie Sanders, they're garbage, total garbage. I don't think that's going to be turning a lot of people on. Anyway, though, with the primaries so close to starting, we're probably going to be talking a lot about American politics on this podcast. And for that, I do apologize to people who might not be particularly interested in American politics, to which I say, you people are crazy, because American politics is more akin to some sort of gladiatorial blood sport than it is to political debate. And how can that not be interesting? Speaking of American politics, it's now time for our first submission, and I'm very eager to delve into this submission. This submission comes from Austin. And the subject line is entitled, Why I Support Donald Trump. He writes, Hello, Spencer. I should probably start by laying out my point quickly, because I expect to produce a disorganized rant, and I don't want it to be too lengthy. I also want to warn you that as a Trump supporter, my use of language, although is not vulgar, it is direct and may not be very PC. I have my argument flying around my head, and I've decided to put it down, so please bear with me. I'll start by saying that I 
politically identify as a centrist libertarian, more specifically social libertarian, less government intervention in social issues, economically tamed, antitrust free market, and diplomatically interventionalist. So I don't think I would exactly classify myself as a member of the GOP base and I have never supported a GOP candidate before, or a Democrat for that matter, but so be it. Donald Trump fits perfectly with almost all my positions that I am unwilling to compromise on. The next president has to support these positions. I believe that is Trump's plan. I am very concerned with corporate tampering in the political system, so the fact that Trump funds himself and is thus not reliant on super PACs or donors is extremely important to me. Trump's success as a businessman and concern with improving the efficiency of government departments, such as the military, is also very convincing. His realist approach to foreign policy neither trusting or distrusting Russia, shows that he takes the situation very seriously. He is very genuine and takes on obsessive political correctness in society and is instead in favor of unfettered free speech. His reluctance to bring up issues on homosexuality makes me suspect he doesn't want to upset his GOP voters by proposing a more lenient view on LGBT issues, though he may support it himself. I also find the arguments against Trump to be extremely lacking. Setting aside the distressingly popular, wow, Trump is such an idiot position, with no reason or rationale behind it, the most critical arguments still fall flat. The argument that he is a racist bigot who hates Muslims and Mexicans and other groups is insufficient, and here is why. First, I will point out that Islam is a religious faith, not a race. Second, I suspect most of his comments are a result of his anti-PC message, and some people are not ready for his direct speech. Third, he has seen and foreseen what is happening in Europe with the Rotterdam child rape ring, Cologne's mass sexual assaults, Sweden's shocking rape rate compared to its neighbors, and attacks in Paris committed by registered militants as a consequence of mass immigration. I am willing to trust his foresight, considering how spot-on he was in the 2003 criticism of the war in Iraq. He pretty much looked 13 years into the future and described what we see today. It is clear that some cultures that many migrants and refugees come from have bad ideas about women, consent, and ages of said consent. And not every immigrant is able or willing to see past that and integrate into Western ideas on those three concepts. They also have extremist factions that preach hatred of the West that have a small and dedicated audience of dangerous supporters. On his Mexican comments, he has expressed extensive support and gratitude towards the people from Mexico that immigrate using supported and legal methods rather than illegally. He did not classify Mexicans as rapists. He declared that the Mexican government was deliberately allowing or even endorsing their known criminals to illegally emigrate to the United States. He clarified himself later when questioned, but some of his detractors ignore that because he looks better when he explains himself and they are not okay with that. Some of his detractors are being intellectually dishonest because of this. 
I hope this rant isn't too harsh to Trump detractors. I may disagree with them, but I want to step up to a more reasonable argument because I'm actually a bit disappointed and scared that I have no choice but to agree with Trump in almost every way. I would rather support Bernie Sanders, but I don't think the American economy is ready to pay for college and health care of hundreds of millions. Not yet, at the very least. You are someone who I trust to mount an intellectually stimulating and damaging argument against my support for Trump, given your past work in this podcast. So I want to hear one if you wish to give it. Thank you for reading this long-winded ramble from one of the Trump supporters in your audience. I love the podcast and your other work, and I look forward to learning about the benevolent dictatorship of Marcus Aurelius. Sincerely, Austin from Arizona. So there's a lot to go over here. I actually sent Austin an email after I received this submission thanking him for it because I hadn't actually received any Trump support yet, so it was nice to get a different perspective. And I always appreciate having a multitude of perspectives given voices on this podcast. As well, though, in the email I sent, I expressed one of the things that worries me most about Trump, and that is how any dissenters from his rallies are forcibly removed. Sometimes people who have done nothing at all are forcibly removed. And the way the crowd can get into this frenzied, completely unjustified hatred is very disturbing to me. There are two main examples of this that come up in my mind. One, there was a recent video where a pair of gentlemen came to a Trump rally and held up signs that said, America is already great. And the people around them started berating them, forcibly grabbing their signs and ripping them up until the whole crowd around them got into this frenzy. And eventually Trump said, get him out of here. We got to kick him out. The next incident was when a Muslim woman came to a Trump rally and all she did was stand up with a shirt that said, I come in peace and had a badge identifying her as a member of the Muslim faith. This is to draw attention to one of Donald Trump's most controversial policies of identifying and cataloging Muslims. This brings up one of my greatest fears if Donald Trump was elected president, is that he wouldn't engage with anyone else besides his own circle of supporters. Anyone else is to be ridiculed and lambasted. Austin wrote me back with two points. One is that he believes Trump is largely innocent of this. And two, people in the past have verbally interrupted Trump rallies and that Trump rallies are not a Q&A session. To which, at first, I largely agreed with Austin that Trump was innocent of this kind of dynamic and it was his supporters that were taking the reins. But as this goes on, more and more it looks like at the very least that Trump staffers are encouraging this type of behavior. And Trump himself said that hopefully once we get security that's so nasty and will kick anybody out, then we won't have any more problems. And the next thing I would say is that yes, if you are being verbally disruptive of a Trump rally, if you're standing up yelling, screaming, making a scene then absolutely you are justified in kicking them out. But when you have people holding up signs that say, America is already great, that's not disrupting the rally. That's not even a bad message. I mean, how dare these people insinuate pride in their country? So what I'm saying is that there's a fine line between dissent 
and disruption. With that being said though, I find it a mark of great courage for a politician to engage with those disruptors. One example of this would be several months ago when Bernie Sanders allowed a series of Black Lives Matter protesters to actually come and take the stage and say their piece. Now, Black Lives Matter is a movement I have very mixed feelings on. I think they're drawing attention to an important issue, but doing it in the worst way imaginable. For me, though, it showed a lot of integrity for Bernie to say, you know what, you got something to say, come up here and say it. And as someone who believes in letting people speak their minds and speak their opinions, it warmed the cockles of my heart. So that's my first concern about Donald Trump, is that if elected president, he would not engage with his detractors. To use a reference from the podcast, he would not be a Marcus Aurelius. He would be a Stephen Harper. So in that sense, I'm not convinced that Donald Trump would be that much better than the PC people in terms of free speech. As well, another thing I wanted to mention, which I forgot to mention earlier, is one thing that makes me completely disrespect Trump is his insistence on personally insulting his political opponents, such as his insults against John McCain, Megyn Kelly, and of course his infinite insults against Hillary Clinton. That makes it so I could never respect him as a candidate because I believe politics should be fought in the realm of ideas, not personal insults. When you exclude Bernie Sanders because of some of his economic policies, I would urge you to reconsider. First off, America already pays for the health care of its citizens. In fact, it pays far more than any industrialized nation. So this idea that somehow the American government isn't spending any money on healthcare already is not the case. The fact is that single-payer healthcare ends up being far cheaper and more effective than any type of privatized healthcare system. The majority of industrialized first world nations have this type of privatized healthcare system and have been able to make it work. And I believe America has the resources and know-how to make it work probably even better than these other countries. The only issue is, is that it's an extremely difficult thing to do politically in the country. When it comes to education, though, you're right, the American government doesn't spend as much on post-secondary education, and to bring in post-secondary education would cost a substantial amount of money. But I argue that this is an investment well worth undertaking, because if America wants to ensure that its citizens are capable of competing in this vast international economy to the best of their ability, university has to be as accessible as possible. The return on investment for education is certainly high, as people who learn more earn more, as the saying goes, and those people end up paying more taxes and therefore the government has more revenue to work with. As well, educated citizens have a higher chance of inventing new and better products for people to consume, as well as proposing innovative solutions to complicated issues. When it comes to migrants and refugees, there's a lot of surrounding factors here and a lot to be said, but I guess I'll start off by saying that virtually every immigrant group 
that comes to a new country has an initial difficulty in assimilating with the native population. As well, there are immigrants from countries all over the world that don't exactly have the same gender parity standards that we do in the West that we allow into our countries with no questions asked. For example, Indian culture has some of the harshest gender discrimination of just about any culture out there. And you'll read stories about horrific gang rapes on buses in India and honor killings. Yet, we don't bat an eye when we bring in Indian immigrants into this country, nor should we, because the overwhelming majority of Indian immigrants are hardworking, industrious people that contribute a great deal. And I feel the same way about Islamic immigrants. Living here in Edmonton, which has a relatively high population of Islamic immigrants in comparison to most Canadian cities, this has given me the chance to interact with Muslims on a far more intimate basis than I have ever had the chance to previously in my life. Most of them, I will say, are younger people around my age, and at the core, they are no different than you or I. So this is why I don't like the idea of singling out and excluding Muslim immigrants on the basis that they don't conform with our cultural values, because you could use that argument to exclude a swath of different people, yet we do not. So singling out Muslims seems extremely unfair to me. What I will say, though, is that the stories coming out of specifically Germany and some of the Scandinavian countries are indeed disturbing. Which, for those of you who don't know, there was numerous reports of women in Germany being molested and sexually harassed by Syrian refugees and migrants. And the incident wasn't reported for quite some time, leading people to believe that it was submerged due to political correctness and not wanting to paint these new migrants in a negative light. Here's what I will say, though, is that if these men are guilty of a criminal offense, and given what we know, this seems to be almost certainly the case, then they should be forced to leave the country. And I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing to say, that these countries have done you a great kindness by harboring you, feeding you, and giving you governmental benefits. And if you can't be respectful to the cultures and customs of the country you're now living in, then, I'm sorry, I don't think you deserve that refugee status. However, these people certainly deserve to have a fair trial before they are forced to leave, and not simply a trial by public opinion. I actually really like what Norway is doing, and that is giving these new migrants classes on the differences between Norwegian culture and their own native culture something which I think can only be beneficial. We've spent a long time on this question, so I'm going to let rest the question of illegal Mexican immigration, for now at least, and say my final point, which is I would not support Donald Trump because I don't think I know what I'm really getting when I support him. He's laid out concrete ideals on immigration and foreign policy, but that's really about it. He said some vague things here or there about economic policy, about tax policy, about social policy. But by and large, we have no idea what his plans are in those arenas. Virtually every candidate has issued some sort of tax plan or economic manifesto, and I haven't seen one from Donald Trump. To me, the economy is the most important issue. And if a candidate isn't willing to release 
some sort of economic plan that I can hold in my hands, that I can read and make notes on, then I certainly could never support them. And if I've missed Donald Trump's tax plan, please let me know, but I wouldn't be satisfied with vague statements that he's made at debates and speeches. So there you go. That's the end of all the American political talk we're going to have for the rest of this episode. Thanks for writing in, Austin. I really appreciate it. And I hope I gave a satisfactory answer to your questions. Our next question comes from Sergio Rivera. He writes, Dear Spencer, I've been a loyal viewer of your content for many years, and I am really enthralled by your podcast. Anyway, to get to my point, I would like to ask if you know of Professor Wolf. He is a very well-educated professor who has studied in several Ivy League universities here in the United States. He is a professor of economics and has a very interesting viewpoint on capitalism and world affairs. He is a Marxist economist. And I would recommend you see his latest episode of Global Capitalism on YouTube. His talks are very thought-provoking, if a little depressing. My question to you is, has capitalism run its course? And is it out of steam? If so, what system do you think should it be replaced with? And can you come up with a reasonable time frame for such a change? Wishing you the best, Sergio Rivera. So I took the time to go and watch some of Richard Wolff's talks that you requested, and I did find them very interesting and very thought-provoking. He reminds me a lot of another professor that I like to read and listen to named David Harvey, who is also a Marxist, and he wrote a fantastic book called The Brief History of Neoliberalism, which I would recommend to anybody interested in politics, economics, or anything in that surrounding realm. There's also a great YouTube video of one of his lectures animated called The Crisis of Capitalism, which is well worth taking the time to go and watch. As well, I've taken Professor Wolf and put him on my list of people to try and invite onto this podcast for a potential interview. So maybe one day when we get a little bit more established, I'll send him an email and ask if he would like to share his thoughts personally. But to tackle your question, I don't believe capitalism is going anywhere at least not within our lifetimes. That is, hoping that we don't run into some sort of cataclysmic destruction of our society. While I personally remain extraordinarily skeptical of Reaganomics and neoliberalism, I believe capitalism that is properly monitored and regulated is extremely beneficial to the overwhelming majority of human beings. I look at countries like Sweden and Denmark as examples of this. They have what's called flex security. They have an extremely strong safety net of social programs and this allows the government to take more risks with the Swedish economy than they would otherwise be able to. Because with this strong safety net, if they take an economic risk and it ends up being not beneficial to the country, it won't be a complete disaster and something they could easily recover from. So this security and risk-taking actually means that Sweden has the potential to take far more economic risks and be much more economically competitive than countries which have a higher degree of unfettered capitalism. The main reason, though, I believe Reaganomics hasn't fallen by the wayside yet is because there has been no credible alternative proposed by left-leaning economic camps. They have done an excellent job in criticizing and critiquing 
the economic ideology, but they haven't done a good job in offering any type of replacements, and that simply isn't enough. Although there are those who are definitely trying to create their own economic platforms, one of which is outlined in the economist Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century. The last thing I would like to say here is that it's interesting to see these Marxist economists sort of coming out of the woodwork. And I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about Karl Marx because Karl Marx in a lot of people's minds is this man of absolute evil and anyone who would ever call themselves a Marxist must be evil too. This is absolutely not the case. Just because Marx's proposed end goal something he actually didn't talk a lot about in his work, didn't turn out to be everything that was hoped and dreamed, doesn't make his criticisms of capitalism any less real or any less powerful. I think of him in the same way I think of Sigmund Freud, the great psychoanalyst psychologist. A lot of his end goals have been completely ridiculed and dismissed by modern-day psychologists yet they still owe so much to him. What I mean by this is that Freud had a lot of crazy ideas, like we all secretly want to marry our parents, all women have penis envy, dreams are these great interpretive dances in our minds, that people who smoke cigars are really smoking these penis substitutes, and so on and so forth. Yet Freud was the first psychologist to identify the incredible impact that your childhood upbringing had on the person you would eventually turn out to be. As well, he drew our attention to these psychological defense mechanisms that we use to eliminate uncomfortable thoughts. Defense mechanisms such as denial, rationalization, sublimation, all of which are still very much so a part of modern psychology. So, just because his end goal was crazy, that doesn't mean the core ideas, themes, and criticisms he laid out are as well. And the same goes for Karl Marx in my mind. Thanks for the great question, Sergio. I hope that answer was satisfactory. Our final question comes from Rin Matthews. Rin writes, There's a famous game theory called The Prisoner's Dilemma, and one day I was reading about it. And the scientists mathematically explained that it's always better for a player to rat out their opponent instead of cooperate. Yet the test subjects overwhelmingly chose to cooperate instead, and they couldn't just get their heads around it. Reading this, it occurred to me that there was more than one game theory going on. People were also playing a larger game of life, where trustworthiness is valued. In the beginning, there were only single-celled organisms. But then, randomly, some of the cells started working together instead of competing. And, by working together, they outcompeted all the cells around them for resources. More groups of cells formed, and these groups grouped together into larger groups to compete against the smaller ones, and boom! Before you know it, there are people, and these people work together to form cities, and these cities form civilizations. Working together like this is valuable because it allows for a specialization of roles. People can become good at one special skill, like podcasting, because they don't have to know how to do a million other jobs as well. We can have amazing things like the internet because other people are gathering food and building our houses. If the assembly line teaches us anything, 
it's that specialization of roles allows for faster and better production. Jonathan Nash, inventor of game theory, looked at the old version of capitalism in a similar way and said that it needed to be revised. He said that instead of always competing as individuals, some individuals can get a better outcome by working together. Therefore, because of evolution, mankind is innately trustworthy because working together is always favored in the grand scheme of things. And since evolution managed to get us to the point where we exist, I postulate that society will one day get to a point where countries become large hive minds of people working together for their nation. Whether you call this communism or fascism is not important. The best civilization would be one where people work together as if they were a single cell in a larger body, doing their specialized function to their fullest and helping out any neighboring cells in need. What does everybody think? Thanks for reading. Rin Matthews. Interesting theory, and for those of you who might not know what exactly the prisoner's dilemma is, it's sort of a philosophical game or mind experiment, whereby you and a comrade of yours are accused of committing a crime, and you have two different outcomes that you can choose. One is that you rat out your partner, or two is that you stay silent. If you rat out your partner and your partner stays silent, then you get to go free and the partner will sit in jail for 20 years. However, if you stay silent and your partner rats you out, then you're going to jail for 20 years and he gets to go free. If you both stay silent, then you both get a short sentence of only six months each. However, if you rat each other out, you both go to prison for 10 years. And I agree with the scientists because when you work it out, there is more benefit in ratting your partner out in the game scenario than staying silent. Because if you rat your partner out, the maximum you will get is 10 years. And the minimum you will get is zero. But if you stay silent, the maximum you will get is 20 years, and the minimum is 6 months. So either way, given the parameters of the game, it's best to rat your partner out. And there's a million different variations of this game. I saw one experiment where the experimenters took the same premise of the game, they just changed the variables to have a more corporate atmosphere. And they had two different groups. In one group, they called the game the capitalism game. And in the next group, they called the game the community game. And despite the fact the only thing they changed is the name, the people who played the capitalism game were more likely to rat out their partners, while the people who played the community game were more likely to stay silent. But I would like to see the study you're referring to, Rin, because I've seen a lot of variations in this experiment where people will definitely rat each other out. So I don't think it's a given that people will naturally cooperate. In terms of the actual theory itself that you put forward, I feel there is one major flaw, and from the way it's written, it seems like this new hive mind society would completely lack any sort of individuality. And I don't think it's possible to stamp out human individuality, and it's certainly not something we should strive for. With that being said, you're absolutely right. Humans do have a tendency to work together, and it's better when we do. No question about it. One of the books I read that changed my life 
is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and I recommend anybody to read this book. In this book, Covey lays out three states of being. The first state is dependence, which is usually when you're dependent on another person, and beyond childhood, this isn't a state that we want to have. The second state is independence, where we can stand on our own, and this is certainly desirable, but not as desirable as the last state, which is codependence. Codependence means while you can all stand on your own, everybody works together to build each other up. And this is the ideal state which we should strive for, a state of our own self-independence, but still working towards building each other up through the cooperation and assistance of other people. So I don't agree that the best civilization would be some sort of hive mind that specializes in production, but the best society would be a society of codependent individuals all working together for the betterment of one another. Anyway, Rin, thanks again for the question. I hope that answer was satisfactory. We actually have some breaking news on this podcast, and news by the time that you actually hear this podcast will still be pretty fresh. While I was editing the podcast, I looked down on my phone and got a notification that a trial I had been following closely, the George Allen Elliott trial, had finally come to a conclusion. And thankfully, it was the right one. So those of you who don't know about this trial, it's a Canadian trial that has garnered international attention, in which a pair of feminist activists accused Allen of criminal harassment back in 2012 because he made some disagreeing and derogatory statements over Twitter. And now, finally, the court case is over and the verdict has been handed down as not guilty. If the verdict had been reversed, it could have extraordinary ramifications on freedom of expression over social media in this country. So I'm very thankful that sanity prevailed here, but still upset that this trial went on so long or even happened in the first place, as this poor man's life is unfortunately ruined, having lost his job, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on his legal defense, but at least now, it wasn't all for nothing. The angle these activists took on was very clear. They wanted to use the courts to silence people they didn't agree with, and that is something I absolutely have no respect for. Not only did you waste my taxpayer dollars on this frivolous exercise, but you ruined someone's life in the process, all because they didn't agree with your point of view. And this is a cultural attitude that needs to change in our society. And definitely one of the reasons why the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius need to be more widely proliferated. If someone insulted Marcus Aurelius over Twitter, I'm sure what would happen is that he would ignore it and continue to focus on the important duties at hand. This idea that somehow nasty tweets are detrimental to our daily lives needs to die because it's well within our own internal cognitive abilities to decide how much weight we give to what other people say and how much time we spend thinking about them and how much they will impact us. We humans have this cognitive ability that animals do not have. There is a space between stimulus and response for us. We do not always have to act the same way to every single situation. We have the power to override our responses, to think about our responses, to question our responses, and act accordingly. 
I'm going to tell you guys a secret. I'm going to tell you a story that I've never told anybody before. I'm going to tell you about the worst piece of internet harassment I have ever personally received. This was an incident that happened several years ago, and I received a direct message via YouTube. And the subject line read, Recognize this. I opened up the message, and it was my address and my family's address. And underneath was written the words, I'm going to kill you all. Do you know what I did? Nothing. I completely ignored it and went about my day. And nothing ever happened. I received no follow-up message and no harm ever came to myself or my family. I felt it was just an empty threat, which it clearly was, and nothing ever came as a result of it. So why bother spending so much time thinking about it? You can disagree that this is the best move, that I should have talked to the police or something, but I frankly didn't take it seriously at all, and had no reason to. So long story short, you don't have the power to control other people, but you have the power to control yourself. And you should exercise it. And that brings me to the end of episode 6 of Naples Ultra. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I look forward to two weeks from now when we will have episode 7 and our third narrative episode. An episode, again, I'm very excited for because it will contain an original theory of mine that I have been working on for quite some time. And I can't wait to finally make it public. So I will see you all in two weeks for episode 7 of Naples Ultra, Pop Culture Culture. And make sure to check the blog regularly for a blog post that will be appearing sometime next week. As well, this is going to be the perfect opportunity for me to set up things like a Twitter account and other social media accounts that desperately need to be formulated in order for this podcast to grow. So there'll still be a lot going on over the next couple weeks. And now, let me reveal this week's question. What do you believe is the best way to respond to harassment and threats over social media? And now, let me take you out with the responses to last week's question. Henry Rickton writes in and says, I think Obama will be remembered as an excellent president. Consider how well he has done economically and especially when you compare him to his predecessor, I think he'll be remembered in a positive light. Alan Zimmer writes in and says, President Obama will be remembered as a mediocre president. He accomplished little of what he set out to do and kowtowed to the establishment at every turn. It's tough to remember the last time a president promised so much and accomplished so little. Andre writes in and says, I will have to say in 20 years time or so, while yes, he became the first black president, he's hardly the first black politician or that was elected in a position of power. There will be a small impact in most cases since he hasn't done anything major as of yet, like the previous presidents, or there was an earth-shattering event, nor has he brought new issues to tackle like previous presidents, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, George W. Bush, and Richard Nixon, to name a few. 
And that's all we have for this week, folks. Remember to submit your comments, questions, and other feedback to spencer at npupodcast.com. 